Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. On July 1st, 1535, Sir Thomas More, the Lord Chancellor of England, got his head chopped off. (laughs) Now, this is not a particularly uncommon thing to happen in the 16th century of England. (laughs) But in Thomas's case, it was unique, and you're going to see why. So the reason he was separated between the head and shoulders is that he refused to recognize Henry VIII's unbiblical divorce— from his first wife. If you know the story, he went on to have a few more. And as chancellor, Thomas More had been Henry's right-hand man. And so when Henry began to go off course, Thomas attempted to quietly resign and keep his mouth shut. But Henry said, no, your refusal to honor this publicly, it makes a louder statement than anything else you could do. And so he insisted that Thomas honor the divorce or be executed, and so he chose death. And there's a description, a historical account by an observer of his execution, which says this. It says, Thomas, upon stepping up to the gallows, said that the king had ordered no speeches. So he asked the crowd to pray. He said, I obey the king because I am a servant of the king. But I am a servant of God first. And it says the executioner knelt before Thomas and asked him for forgiveness. But Thomas kissed his executioner, gave him what money he had, and said, Pick up your spirits, man, and don't be afraid to do your office. My neck is very short. Don't let your hesitation deal me a crooked blow. You hasten me to God. And someone said, that's quite a way to start a sermon, Ian. (laughs) Well, today is our fourth installment in the series on 1 Peter. This is who we are. And we've been looking at what our group identity is as the people of God, as opposed to any other group identity. And the reason is this, because whatever your group identity is, determines your character and behavior more than any other factor. And so I believe that one of the main reasons that the lives of many people who proclaim Christ, who claim to be Christian, that they're indistinguishable from their non-Christian neighbors is that we may know who we are in Christ as a person, but we don't know who we are in Christ as a people. And so what we're doing in this series is really the theology of the people of God. And so the theme for this morning— is this. We've been looking at seven statements drawn from the book of 1 Peter about who we are. And the statement for this morning is, we submit because we are people of honor. And more specifically, we give honor because we are honorable people. And so if you wanted to sum up Peter's theme in this passage in this morning, you could say, you could say it like this. Honorability is bred by mating humility with submission. Honorability is bred by mating humility with submission. 
So one of the things that we've seen in this series is that if our group identity is in Christ, what that's going to mean is that sometimes we should expect there to be some friction between this is who we are and this is what we do versus other group identities that tell us this is what we do. You should expect some friction from time to time. There should be some cost involved if we are to live out who we are in Christ as a community. And so we have a passage this morning that of all the passages in the book of 1 Peter, I think creates probably the most friction with the most things that other group identities, other cultural identities would tell us. And so I want you to join me this morning in biting off far more than we can chew. <laughs> but I want you to keep, in this, keep, keep this in mind as we do that. C.S. Lewis, I never fail to mention him. He said that the parts of scripture that are the hardest to understand or the most challenging, those are the ones that you should probably pay the most attention to for the very reason that they challenge you. Because if God is God, I should expect that some of the things he tells me should be hard to understand. They should be challenging. And so we're going to read this passage. It's a long passage. I'm going to read it with, and make a few comments. And then we're going to look at what God has in mind regarding honor and our honorability as a people. And we're going to ask what makes those things valuable? What makes them practical, maybe even, for us in the 21st century? So let's begin reading in 1 Peter 2, verse 12. And we're going to read into chapter 3. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So the passage begins, it tells us that our acting honorably, our honorability as a people is for the sake of the Gentiles. And, and in our setting, that would mean the unbelieving world. And then Peter gives this huge caveat. He says, so that when, when, not, not if, but when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. But when on the day of visitation. Okay, not so controversial so far, but we're just getting started. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, the supreme civil authority in our nation that would be president or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So today that would be officers of that law. That would be police or the judicial system. And it says, verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And here I believe, this, this is what I believe kind of gives us the key to this passage and I can see some of your faces and you're saying, why are you bringing this up? And the thing is, when you want to preach the whole Bible, sometimes you read passages that are a little uncomfortable. <laughs> so here's, here's what I think is the key in this passage. He says, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So what does that look like? Well, he goes on to explain, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. And your translation there may translate servant as 
slave. It's closer. Bond servant is the actual word, but it's closer to what we would call slave. And the word honor is changed there to respect. It's not the same thing. And that would be a whole message in itself. But either way, Peter, we're to respect unjust masters? What are you talking about? And he says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so I think he narrows the focus of what the suffering is that he's talking about. He's not just talking generally. He's talking about suffering for the sake of Christ-likeness. And if that's true, then if we're to suffer for the sake of Christ-likeness, then our submission should also look like Christ's submission. And so he goes on. This is what we do. Verse 22, he said, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's quoting Isaiah 53 there, of course. How are you liking this passage so far? (laughs) Well, we've encountered something deeply offensive to whatever political persuasion you might be of so far, but let's keep going. (laughs) Chapter three, likewise, wives, (laughs) oh boy, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Don't let your your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. (laughs) (laughs) And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, which is a very interesting addition by Peter there. He's saying, I think he's recognizing that some husbands are in fact frightening to their wives. But the way to triumph over that fear is not by using looks or emotions. It's by the use of character, by exemplifying Christ-likeness. He's saying, this is what we do. Now he speaks to the husbands. Husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And just notice there that he's saying all of this is about 
unhindered prayer. This is about ultimately intimacy with God, not having a a, a barrier. And I want to notice, the whole message is not going to be about this, but I, I couldn't let this go without mentioning this. Notice the relationship between husbands and wives that he's speaking into here. If you cast your minds back to Genesis 3, when God pronounces the consequences of the fall over Adam and Eve, he says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, some people think that's how Christian households should work. That's actually a a part of the fall, if you notice. Okay, so (laughs) the result of sin, in other words, was strife between man and woman, husband and wife. It's gender strife. And he says the result of this sin is that women are going to use desire— they're going to use emotion and, and, and things that generate desire to try and get their husbands in line to try and get ahead. And it says men are going to use domination and force to try and get ahead. But notice what Paul's doing here. He flips it. He's saying, if you want to live out the, the, the consequences, not of the fall, but of the gospel, if you want to live out the, the consequences of the redemption of Jesus, he flips it. He says, women, you're no longer going to have a desire that's contrary to your husband. You're going to do what's hard and submit. Men, you're no longer going to dominate over, your, over women and over your wives. Instead, you're going to do what's hard for you. You're going to honor. <laughs> and so you can already see this, this opposite group identity being lived out, not just in, in the public sphere, not just in, um, in, in politics and, and, and everything, but in the home. I wish I could, it's not going to be the whole message, but I think that's so important to see that in Christ, the results of the fall are being reversed and undone. And he's instructing us how to live out the implications of the gospel. And so, man, I could spend the whole message just on that. But okay, that's our passage. Basically a whole chapter. And you may have noticed there's probably at least 10 super controversial topics within this passage, all right? Let's list them. The sanctity of marriage, honoring civil authority, submission to one another, subjection to authority, living in humility, respect, suffering injustice, servanthood and slavery, dressing modestly, and all with the intention of producing effective prayer. So if you said, Ian, pick a passage— why don't I just move this? If I were asked to pick a passage that would, you know, contradict the most possible norms and customs of American culture <laughs> and, and one that would offend, you know, equally across, you know, the political aisle, I think I'd be hard pressed to pick one better than this. All right. <laughs> I think that even I'm slightly nervous even reading it to you. Isn't that interesting? But the basic gist of what Peter's saying here is that as the people of God, as the church, we're expected by our Father to outperform the world in righteousness, in showing honor. And so the title of the message is Outdoing the World. And you might be thinking, okay, Peter, but 
you don't know what our government's like today. You don't know what they're asking us to do now, Peter. You don't understand the times that we live in. He must be speaking to, to the people then. And you have to remember, okay, this is written late in Peter's life, probably when Peter himself was awaiting execution at the hands of the very government he's telling us to honor and show respect to. What mindset is he thinking from to be able to write these words? His very life is going to be taken by the same forces that he's encouraging us to honor. And and probably the, the emperor that he's talking about in this passage is Nero. And if you know anything about Roman history, Nero's one of the bad ones. We think our leadership is bad. With kids present, I can't mention some of the things that he did, but you can go look it up. This is radical behavior that that Peter's talking about. This is radical love that he's talking about. And yet what you see is it's no different than how Jesus acted before Pilate, right? So what does this have to say to us? I hope you don't expect me to get into all the details of all those topics in this message. It's inevitably going to have to be at at a pretty bird's eye view, bird's eye level But what I want to do is look at some principles for us as a people about who we are as a people in Christ. And I like to sum it up by this. We submit because we are people of honor. So let's begin with with, with definitions. Okay, what are we talking about when we talk about honor? Biblical honor, this is is again drawn from the grubby, handy-dandy definition dictionary. Grubby's our pastor emeritus. I see you didn't know that. But biblical honor is to esteem someone privately and publicly as a gesture of love. So biblical honor has a public dimension as well as a private dimension. It's not enough just to honor someone privately. There's a public dimension to it. And it doesn't mean just bringing everybody up at the front of the service or something like that. Honor is not just a feeling. It's something to be expressed. And, And actually, when you look at it biblically, it's a gift. And so... Honor's really easy when you're talking about someone you naturally feel an admiration for. But it becomes challenging, it becomes hard when we talk about the kind of people that Peter's actually talking about. How can he say that about pagan rulers? And I think it gets to the difference between honor in the world and honor in the kingdom of God. And here's the difference. Honor in the world is grounded in performance. It's grounded in another's performance. But honor in the kingdom is grounded in a person's dignity in the eyes of God. Performance-based versus dignity-based, personhood-based. It's rooted really in the doctrine of the image of God that we find on the very first pages of of the scripture. So in the world where honor is grounded on my performance and I feel that I performed, well, then I can require honor. I can demand honor. But the honor of the kingdom, it's never something to be paid or demanded. It's a gift. And as soon as you earn something or you demand something, it ceases to be a gift. Honor in scripture, honor in the kingdom is always rendered as a free gift from the honoring one to the one honored. Why in Romans 12, 10, Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. 
And verse 17 in what we just read, Peter says something very similar. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. So we're instructed to give honor. We're never instructed to demand it. Which is interesting. Paul emphasizes that in 1 Corinthians 12. He says we're not to demand or command honor for ourselves, but we are to honor those who are the least among us. So biblical honor, just like so many of the values of the world, it's flipped on its head in Scripture. Okay, so what does this mean for us? The next point, that honor is the ability to esteem who someone is without tripping over who they are not. This is something that Pastor Grubby said during his retirement celebration when, of course, honor piled in to to show honor, to shower him and and Trish with, with honor. And I thought there was a really great definition because when you honor somebody, and you, and you treat it as a gift, you're able to honor someone for who they actually are and not get all caught up in your disappointments of who they aren't or their failures or, or whatever it is. When you're showing honor and it's a true gift, you can offer that without tripping up on who they aren't. And so we're people of honor. Christians are the people who honor everyone for who they are in the eyes of God, not for who they're not. So people can actually be honored in one area of their lives, even if other areas are less than perfect. Now, it's a tough one for us in our culture. And I'm not saying that, that there's not wisdom that needs to be applied in that at great, you know, in great measure and, and timing and all that stuff. But here's the thing. If we're only capable of seeing people in this category or that category, black or white, good bad. Hero, villain. If we have these two categories and that's it, it becomes very difficult to actually honor anyone. We're going to struggle to render honor to others if that's our only two categories. People of honor are capable of seeing the good and the honorable in others while not requiring that they fit all of the Christian cookie cutter. I've seen this in people that, and, and I admire it because I, I, uh, I struggle to do that. I've seen this in people that I look up to in the faith. Elliot Tepper, for instance. Okay. Some of you know who Elliot is. He is long-term missionary supported by our church and, and formerly by MCC as well. Elliot has dedicated his life to helping people out of addiction, off the streets, out of homelessness. And, and, you know, this is a guy who's Harvard educated. Right now, he'd be running a Fortune 500 company if he wasn't serving heroin addicts in Madrid. And Elliot has this ability to look at someone that's covered in sores, covered in track marks from shooting up and see what is honorable in them. And I've seen that lift people. You know, someone said, hold a crown over someone's head and they'll eventually stand up into it. And, and I've seen that at work in Elliot. And it's, it's, every time I see it, I'm like, wow, I didn't see that in them. <laughs> but you, you see how dignifying a person with that is so humanizing because you're seeing the image of God in that person. 
So people of honor are able to see that. Now, 1 Peter 3, 7 says, husbands, honor your wives. And if anyone who's married here, you know that, you know, because marriage is such an intimate thing, in marriage, you get to see, no matter how good your marriage is, you get to see the good, the bad, and the no makeup, right? (laughs) Good, you know, I'm talking about me. It's funny, you know, me and Selena, when we're 60, she's still going to look 30. And when I'm 60, I'm going to look 75. (laughs) but no matter how good your marriage is you, you you get to see the imperfections right i think that's god's one of god's big points about marriage is to teach us to love unconditionally but here's the thing to honor your wife therefore it means you're able to see the good and praise the good privately and publicly while not tripping up over the things that you know she could grow in. And when, and when you do that in a marriage, you lift each other up. You honor each other in other people's eyes. And, and you get blessed in return when you honor your spouse. Can anyone say amen to that? Yeah. <laughs> now, I wanna, I'll give you an example. So I have a, a friend out in Harrisburg. He, he's, he's got an incredible ministry of evangelism to neighbors, just 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 relational, and he, he, he calls it micro-church, and he loves kind of inviting neighbors over for fire pits and, and watching games and that kind of stuff. So he has this bunch of guys over at his house, and they're having a, a fire pit after a, a football game, and, and all of a sudden, one of them starts just complaining about his wife. Oh, man, I can't believe, you know, I haven't been able to do this in years. She keeps me at home all the time. I'm never free to do what I want. You know, all the, all the things that men have such suffering with. And, you know, so before you know it, the next guy is saying, oh, yeah, my wife, blah, 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 blah. And the next guy, and, you know, and it breeds, right? So it gets to my friend Mike, and he says, yeah, me and my wife, we struggle sometimes, but you know what? I can be a real jerk to her. And he starts talking about how much grace and forgiveness his wife has towards him, right? And it changes the whole mood of this fire pit. And all of a sudden, now the men that were just complaining about their wives are saying, yeah, you know what? She's actually pretty cool. You know, this one time, and you know, this is, this is how being a people of honor can shift the atmosphere, even in these, these simple basic situations, honoring his wife, you know, a lot of those guys in that circle are now part of his Christian community. And so, okay, we're reading this whole passage. We can't lose sight of the fact that the whole point that Peter's getting at is it's about, um, so this is being honorably in the sight of the world, in the sight of unbelievers. And so this is what, that's what verse 12 says, keep your conduct before the Gentiles honorable So I want to ask, in a culture where the entire, virtually the entire media infrastructure is built on dishonor, I don't know if you've watched the television in the last three months, but I'm not seeing a single commercial, it seems like, that isn't based on a complete dishonor of another person. The reason is outrage sells really well. Okay. 
when that's our surrounding, how can we be people of honor? How do we exemplify honor in that kind of surrounding? So here's the challenge. (laughs) What if we as Christians were known for, for being people who speak well of their opponents? Not agreeing, but speaking well of those we disagree with. What if instead of criticizing and cutting down, we're we're able to find within ourselves the image of God in that person and honor it? Is that naive? Is, Is that idealistic? Or is that a way where we could show Christ likeness? Now, don't you think Peter's letter, it could have very easily been a very different letter. Don't you think Peter's letter could have been a, 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 a diatribe, a, a, a critique of the godlessness of Nero's regime? Don't you think it could have been full of all the injustice that his people, the Jews, had suffered under the Roman colonial empire? Both of those things could have taken up the entirety of his letter, and they would have been completely true, completely just. But that's not what Peter writes. It's not what he chooses to write on. He knows that all of that is going to be dealt with by God. But what he's writing, he's writing to the church as, remember, this whole letter is addressed to the exiles who are living in Babylon. He's writing to show uh, the church, how we as a people within that setting can be a distinct people. And it's not by railing against who we disagree with. It's, it's by honoring the very people who are against us. And we're the people, remember Jesus said, we're the people who pray for our enemies. Why are we able to do this? And I think this is where we get back to verse 16 of chapter 2 there. We are genuinely free. That's why we're able to do this. Why? Because we are not ultimately subject to human governments. We're not ultimately subject to human bosses. We're not even subject ultimately to our spouses. We're subject to God. And because of that, we're able to keep in mind the the God-shapedness of whoever we're interacting with. We're able to speak well and to offer honor where honors do. And so we don't need to trip up over, some, over who someone is not. Why? Because who we are and our blessedness and our well-being, it's not dependent on them or that person, no matter who they are, be they the very president of the United States. Our blessedness and our, our identity as a people is not hinging on them. It is settled and it's fixed in Christ. And that makes us free. And so, just as God, think about this, guys. Just as God was able to look at me and honor the image of God in me by sending his son to die for me when I was his enemy and wanted nothing to do with him, when I lived my life in complete contradiction to all of his will, That's what he did for me. Why? Because he saw the preciousness of who he created me to be. If that's true, then 
I can sacrifice my pride. I can sacrifice my cultural or political preferences for the sake of winning others to Christ. That, if we're able to do that, that will show the world something different about who we are. Not in ourselves, but in Christ. And so it gives rise to a really important question because Peter's talking about all this. He says, live your lives honorably before the Gentiles. Do this, you know, to win them over so that they'll see your good deeds and glorify Jesus. And you say, when will they glorify Jesus? And he says, at the day of visitation. I'd prefer it to be today (laughs) or maybe tomorrow. He says, no, the day of visitation. What does that mean? Well, he's talking about the eschaton, the end of times, the the day of judgment. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you you and utter all kinds of evil against you. But he doesn't say when (laughs) you'll be blessed because of that. Well, Peter says, it's the day when Jesus returns. And so our last point here is that ultimately the measure of what's honorable may have to be reserved until the final judgment. You know, thankfully, there are lots of times, there's lots of settings where of times also good deeds will be recognized, where, where righteousness will be honored. But you know what? There's going to be lots of times also where righteousness for God's sake will not be recognized. Thomas More certainly wasn't recognized for his righteousness in the moment. But it will be recognized when Christ returns. And so, just to enter into even more controversy this morning, because I know that's what you all want. <laughs> Let me give an example of this, all right? And this, this, is, this is a painful example. Roe v. Wade was just overturned recently over this summer. And we've celebrated that. And... That was an unjust law that was passed 40 years ago. An entire generation has passed. How many countless millions of lives, born and unborn, have been affected by that unjust law or taken because of that unjust law? But here's the thing. At the time when that was passed, um, 70% of the American public was against abortion. So public opinion was actually against it. So statistically speaking, Christians were in the the majority of opinion at that time. There was a cultural honorability, in other words, in taking that stance. But how many of you know that figure has reversed? And now to be in favor of life in, in that sense is in the minority of public opinion. And so you may have noticed Christians have become the bad guys when it comes to that question. Now, you may doubt the statistics and all that thing, but, but for many, many Americans, if not the majority of Americans, Christians have gone from being the good guys to the bad guys there. We've gone from being, we, we have been reviled as evildoers because of that particular ethic. So what does that mean? It means there is no cultural honorability in being against abortion. So do we change our ethic to fit with popular opinion? No. 
but it might change how we talk about it. When we recognize that we're in that minority position, it, it, it gives us an understanding that, hey, we're, we're exiles again on this thing. And it should certainly change our expectations because we're not going to be receiving praise and honor for taking that particular moral stand. And so you could, I picked maybe the hottest button issue to show you that there's going to be lots of areas of life and, and who knows what it'll be. Well, I can point out several other things that are on the horizon that, that are, are going to see the same effect. But when Jesus returns, the things that have been a source of revile and hatred, if we've stood for righteousness in God, Jesus says, the world will see that that was the way to honor him. The problem is we as a church, we don't live, I don't think day to day, we don't live in the awareness that he is coming back and that we will see that vindication when he returns. Now, I'm going to close here before the the rotten fruit starts getting thrown. (laughs) I got to say, when we planned out this pulpit series a couple months ago, I had no idea that this would be a week before midterm elections. Isn't that amazing how the Holy Spirit works and, and directs our steps sometimes? So I, I, you know, this, this has really been working on me, even in preparing to deliver this today. Um, I believe God's some, got something profound to tell us about who we are as a people, who we are as exiles within Babylon, and, and how we live in response to that. We are not those who join in in dishonor. We honor the image of God in other people. We are the ones who speak well, even of our opponents. And we encourage others to speak well. We're not those who complain and critique about our bosses, about our wives, about our husbands. That's not what we do as a people. What we do as a people is we show honor and we submit because we're a people of honor. Why do we submit? Because... Ultimately, it's submission to God. And so is there no place for complaint and lament? Of course there is. Half the Psalms are laments and complaints. Submission, this could be a whole message in itself. Submission is not about smiling and going along blindly as the crowd fall off the cliff. That's not what submission is. It's not denial of evil. (laughs) It's certainly not doing unrighteousness for the sake of being popular. You know what submission is? Well, Jesus shows us in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus as Messiah, he goes to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane before going to the cross. And what does he do? He turns to his friends and he says, my soul is weary to the point of death. My soul is sorrowful. Remain here and watch with me. Then it says he fell on the ground and prayed, if it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. So Jesus pours out his heart to his friends. He pours out his heart to Father God. He asks for help. He asks that if possible, this would change. But then how does he end his prayer? He says, but not my will, but your will be done. So he offers his emotions. He offers his requests for change, but ultimately he entrusts himself to the Father. 
So as the musicians come up and we, we finish just with, with a, a chorus, this is what we do as a people. This is who we are as a people. We're people of honor. We're free to honor our government. We're free to honor our bosses. We're free to honor our parents. We're free to honor our spouses, even if they're unbelievers, because we're ultimately submitted to God. And so there's room for our feelings. There's room for crying out for change. But that story of of Thomas More, who later on became a a, a saint of the church, um, just like him, just like Paul, just like Peter, just like Jesus even, we can show honor even to those who oppose, even to those who mistreat, even to those who abuse us or threaten our lives. Why? Because our lives are entrusted to God. So I know that's a, a challenging message. It's a hard message. And, and I want to invite you to stand with me as we close in prayer. Jesus, I thank you even for the difficult parts of your word. Help us, Holy Spirit, to receive all that is from you, to reject any condemnation, because that's not of you, but to receive your loving correction, Lord, that we would become more like Jesus. Lord, I pray that in in the midst of a a time in history and a, a, a culture that we're in, Lord, that, that stews on dishonor and, and perpetuates dishonor, Lord, that we would become a people, because this is who we are in you, Lord Jesus, that we would be a people and you would empower us to be a people of honor. That, Lord, as we, as we go into our, our homes and our jobs and our conversations with our neighbors and friends, Lord, that, that begin to stir and center around dishonor, Lord. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you'd empower us to be voices of honor, to be voices that speak well, that see the image of God in every person, especially those where we disagree or, 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 we, or, we, or who oppose us. Lord God, I pray that you would give us the same strength that Peter had as he wrote this letter facing his own execution. Oh God, that no matter what would come against your church, Lord, that we would glorify you by outdoing the world in honor and respect and love. Lord, and that by that, one day, if not today, if not tomorrow, that one day, Lord, the world would see the good deeds and the the, the good honor of your people, Lord, and glorify you. Lord, may we, may each of us glorify you with our lives, with our words, with our thoughts, with our actions. In the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.